bites. Remember the context of Ephesians, Paul's reminding these this church of mostly Gentiles of their full salvation so that they will walk worthy of it. In chapter 1, he gives his greetings, he gives this doxology of praise, and then he shares a prayer for them that they would know Christ more. But then in chapter 2, he begins to talk a little bit about their salvation, or talks more fully about their salvation, especially as it relates to the past. Let's look first at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We'll look at verses 1 to 10 in total, but we're taking it in small verses or small sections. So verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I just notice a few things. Well, we're going to follow our method of observe, interpret, apply. Let's notice a few things in this first couple verses in Ephesians 2. Who is the you of verse 1, where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins? It's the Ephesian believers, these Gentile Christians. You Christians were dead. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. That was your condition. So this is their former state. Notice verse 2 says, in which you formerly walked. This is their condition before what they are now, before they're being saved. And notice what he says is true about them in the past. He says, first of all, that they were dead. They had no power, no life, no cognition, nothing. They were dead in trespasses and sins. They weren't physically dead, obviously, that he's talking to them. But they were dead in another sense, spiritually, in the trespasses and sins. And what did this deadness consist of? How did it manifest itself? Well, they walked according to the course or the age of this world. They walked according to the ruler of this, uh, a certain ruler, the prince of the power of the air. They were sons of disobedience. They were pursuers of fleshly lusts. They were by nature children of wrath. But notice, he's not just laying it on the Ephesians, because verse 3 says that we too, we too all formerly lived. Now, who's the we? This would be the apostle, Paul, his companions, and thereby extension, Jews, Jewish believers, and Gentile believers together all once were in this condition. We too formerly lived according to our lusts. This wasn't just a Gentile thing. Yeah, you Gentiles are really bad. No, this is the way we all were. And you see that further emphasized in verse 3. He says, we too all, everyone is included. Or when he says that you were children of wrath or we were children of wrath, even as the rest that doesn't leave anybody out. We were just the same as everyone else, he says. And so from this first couple of verses, we can already ask some interpretation questions or come to some conclusions interpretation-wise. Who is the prince of the power of the air? This is Satan. He's also called of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So he says, you all walked according to the will of Satan. And so did I. So did we. Now, 
it's interesting here. He says on the one hand that they were dead, and on the other hand that they were walking. How can those two things fit together? Well, the dead, the deadness, describes the helpless and rebellious spiritual condition that they had. While the walking, that's a pretty common metaphor in the New Testament to describe their behavior, how that deadness was manifesting in their lives. Really, they were spiritually dead men walking. They had this total deadness spiritually, and it was showing up in the way that they thought, the way that they desired, and the way that they acted. The theological term that we use for this condition is unregenerate. And you can see how that relates to even the metaphor Paul uses. They have not been regenerated. They do not have life. They have not been made alive, like regenerated. They are unregenerate. He says, that's what you were, you Ephesian Gentile believers, and that's what I was as a Jewish unbeliever. He says, we were all children of wrath. Now, what does it mean to be a child of wrath? It's kind of a vivid metaphor. But you are an inheritor. You, it's almost like you're part of the family of those who are under wrath. That's what your inheritance is your sinful nature and the consequent actions that come from that, they have brought you under the very holy and hot wrath of God. He says, this is what you were. This is what everyone is. This is what the whole world is before anyone is saved. And it is a very desperate state. Paul has painted a very bleak picture of a saved person's former condition. And this describes... All people. This is the former state of Jew and Gentile. And so, for you at Calvary, this is your former state. And for me, this is my former state. Do you recognize that? Do you confess this description to be accurate of you? Because this is what the word says. But this is only the former state because something happened. And let's read the next few verses, verses 4 to 6, to see what changed. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let's observe this section. It starts with a contrast. But God, I think some of you have heard, uh, some pastors, theologians say these are some of the two greatest words in scripture together. But God, they indicate that he, as terrible as things can be, God is able to act and to change things. In contrast to our pitiful state, God did something. But before Paul tells us exactly what he did, he reminds us who God is and some of the motivations within his heart. It says he was rich in mercy, being rich in mercy. That was his constant state. That is his constant state. And because of his great love with which he loved us, he acted in love. He was full of love. And then another quick reminder of who we are. Though we dead in our transgressions, just as he said in the first three verses, what did God do? Notice the verbs. He made us alive, both Jew and Gentile. He made us alive. He saved us by grace. He raised us up. And seated us with him, that's God, in the heavenly places. 
though notice all of these actions, they have a, a certain phrase attached to them. What phrase is repeated over and over with each one of these actions? With him, together with him, or through him, talking about Jesus Christ. All of these things happen through and with Jesus. Now that's instructive. Again, if we talk about interpreting these verses, what does this repetition of with Christ tell us? That all of this, this change from our former state into what, what we are now, that came about through Christ, in Christ. That's actually a great theme in the book of Ephesians. It's this idea of union with Christ. All of your salvation blessings, Calvary, they come on the basis of your being spiritually joined to the Son of God. He's the source of your life. He's the source of your blessing. When you become attached to him, you are saved. You are transformed. Now, when we talk about the word saved, what exactly are we saved from? Well, remember what verse 3 already said. We were children of wrath. There are plenty of things we're saved from. You know, purposelessness, uh, an unwise way. But chief among them is that we were saved from God. We were saved from the anger and wrath of God. And of course, the self-destruction of our own way. Now, there's an interesting phrase here that's worth pondering. What does it mean to be seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Notice that's a present reality. It says we have been seated, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Now, it can't be literal. You guys are all still alive, so you're not seated. Your souls are not seated in heaven in a way that it will be after you die. So what is this talking about? Well, this is, again, going back to the idea of union with Christ. This is where made alive spiritually. We're also exalted with Christ. And in a sense, we have been brought, we've been exalted, glorified right into the very heavenly places in which Christ is glorified right now. We have salvation secured through him, but also our glorification has become a reality, not yet fully experienced, but one that is partially experienced and one that is objectively true. God doesn't just save us in Christ. He also glorifies us in Christ. We are glorified through and with his son. It's a present reality now. We have a glory before God, not, a, not of our own, but one that through Christ has been given to us. And what a contrast. What a contrast to our former state as described in the first three verses. We were in a sinful state under wrath, helpless. Then God did all this through Christ. And we were changed. Now it says that we were saved by grace. A little parenthetical in there. What is grace? Yeah, unmerited favor is a great definition. It's something that we receive, a gift that we did nothing to earn. And he says, that's how you were saved. You didn't do anything. Now, if that's true, then why did God do it? If we didn't deserve it, why did he do it? And we get a little bit of an answer to that in the last section of this set of 10 verses, verses 7 to 10. We hear some of the reasons why God did this. We know that as part of his merciful nature, his love, which he chose to set on us 
but listen to some of the reasons that come in verses 7 to 10. We also see in these verses a very clear description of what exactly happened to make us become saved. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And did you catch the three reasons that are presented in these last couple of verses for why God transformed us? Verse 7 says that so God can show off his lavish grace and kindness in the ages to come. This is all about showing off his work. It's showing his glory. By saving us, he's now able to show his great kindness into the forever ages. And in verses 8 to 9, he did it. He did all of this. He transformed us so that no one may boast. And then in verse 10, it says, another reason why he transformed us is that so that we might walk in the good works that God prepared for us to do. Now, we'll come back to the idea in just a second. But notice what appears in verses 8 to 9. Now, I'm sure you have read, encountered, memorized these verses because they're so clear and critical for understanding what salvation is. This very carefully worded, constructed salvation formula describes what happened. It, we again see the phrase that appear, appeared in verse 5. By grace, you have been saved. That is, it was an unearned gift. It was an undeserved act of kindness from God. Through faith, you experience this undeserved gift by the means of faith. That is, by means of your personal belief and trust in Jesus Christ. As God, as Lord and Savior. As the truth. So, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now, what does the that refer to? That is a demonstrative pronoun referring to something that's come before. And it's actually a little bit tricky grammatically to figure out what is the antecedent of this word that. Just to give you a little bit of the grammar here from the Greek side, both, both the word grace and faith that appear earlier in the verse, they are feminine nouns in Greek, but the word that, the pronoun, is in the neuter sense. And so it doesn't easily refer to either one of those nouns. So theologians, pastors debate exactly what the the referent is here. And the best understanding appears to be that the word that doesn't refer to one or the other of those terms, but both of them together. And really the idea of salvation in general, this grace through faith that you experience, that whole paradigm, that whole uh, system, that experience, that is not of yourselves. You didn't have really anything to do with that. You didn't earn that. You didn't produce that. So then what is it? If it didn't come from you, it is, as the verse goes on to say, it is the gift of God. God gave you salvation as a gift. And just to be even clearer about that, notice he says next, not as a result of works. I mean, he's being very emphatic here. 
It's another way of saying the same thing. If it's a gift, it can't be from works because else, elsewise it's not a gift. Now, what do we mean by works? We mean any effort, any act, any deed, anything that you might do to bring about a certain result. He says, no, your salvation did not come from any work that you did. It was a gift from God. So, in multiple ways in this verse, by using the word grace, by talking not of yourselves, it is a gift. It did not come from works. Paul has iterated again and again that this transformation from God, this transformation you experienced in salvation was totally of God. Even the belief you exercise, which God uses as an ordained means of bringing you to salvation, that was not of yourselves. It was a gift. God placed that in you. He gave you the faith to believe so that you would be saved. And what was the What's the outcome? What's the reason behind all of that? We already mentioned that second reason is that so no man can boast. He's got nothing to say. Look, I did that. Look, you know, these other people, they're, they're foolish. They don't understand salvation, but I understand and I did it. Now he says, that's not the case. Anything that you received that resulted in your salvation, that came from God. I like what one I think it's Calvin or maybe it's somebody else. One theologian says, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So we see these things in these last couple of verses and let's, let's again interpret. Now, what is the means that Paul most clearly identifies as what brings about salvation? It's all of God, but what is the means that God uses? By grace, through faith. It's faith, faith in Christ. Now, what is the relationship, according to Paul in these verses, between faith and works? We can say two things. First of all, works do not contribute to your salvation. That is so emphatic from Paul here. But works are related. They're actually one of the reasons that God saves you. Not in the sense that you earned it, but this, it's one of the outcomes. You're saved so that you may do good works. You're saved so that you can walk in the works that God has already ordained that you do. He's already laid them out for you. So far from being a prerequisite for salvation, works are a purpose or result of salvation. Your good deeds, the righteous things that you do, the holy life that you live, that is an outcome an intended result of salvation, not a prerequisite. Now, how does this teaching square with the rest of the New Testament? Well, let me just show you some verses. You can turn there if you like, but Titus chapter 3, Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. Just to show you, this is not an isolated idea that's been taken out of context. Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. In this passage, Paul is explaining why Christians ought to be patient, understanding towards all people in the world, even those who do not believe in Jesus. And listen to what Paul says. Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. For we also were, or we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But... 
when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Now notice all the parallels to the passage we just examined in Ephesians 2, 1-10. The previous state, our previous state is described. Before we were believers, we were hateful, foolish, etc. There's an emphasis that um, God saved us not on the basis of deeds we did or any righteousness that we had. It was God's mercy, holy. It's his work that saved us. But notice the result. In verse 8 of Titus, this, is, this all happened so that we would be encouraged, we would be made to do good deeds. And again, we can see the same thing if we go to John. Go to the book of John, chapter 1. John 1, verses 12 to 13. This is kind of the introductory section of the Gospel of John. In the context, the Apostle John is writing about the incarnation of the Son as a man and man's rejection of God in the flesh. But notice what it says in verses 12 to 13. John writes, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So notice what we see again here repeated. What is the means of becoming a child of God? It is to receive Christ. It is to believe in his name. But how does this happen? What brings about this new birth? Well, it's not your will, not the will of the flesh, it's not the will of man, but it's God. God does it all. And we see this teaching explored even further in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I won't read through that section, but I'll remind you of some of the things that are said there. Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again of the Spirit, you cannot be saved. And we've even looked at this passage before ourselves in Sunday school. You didn't do anything to bring about your physical birth. You can do nothing to bring about your spiritual birth. God must do it all. But the means he uses is the belief, the faith, that he himself provides. And we could go to many other passages in the New Testament and elsewhere, but I think you understand, you get the point. Salvation is all of God, and it comes by faith. Righteousness and good works are an effect of salvation, but not a prerequisite to salvation. And many of these truths that I've been discussing with you right now, these are at the heart of the Reformation, that great uh, rediscovery and re- assertion of biblical truth and salvation. And those truths, those Reformation truths, those Bible truths are captured well in the five solas, even those five Latin phrases that sum up a lot of what the Reformation was about, in particular when it comes to salvation. Uh, each one of these phrases has a noun and then the idea of alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, 
Salvation is revealed in the scriptures alone, not in man's wisdom or religious tradition. Sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide, salvation is by faith alone. Solus Christus, salvation is through Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, salvation is for the glory of God alone. Notice how these solas, they practically line up with the formula of salvation we read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. All those things were present in the context and in the words of those verses. Now, such a teaching, this biblical truth, it offends the pride of man, who man wants so badly to justify himself before God, because he believes deep down, you know what, I am good. But this truth that we've seen here, describing our former condition and what was necessary to save us, it shows us, no, none of us were good. None of us were able to work for God's acceptance. God must do it all. And he extends his gift of salvation to any who call upon him by faith. So this teaching, it confounds the Judaizer, the legalist, the Catholic, or any other person who tries to make salvation a means or a salvation um, a matter of works or of faith plus works, which is really another way of saying salvation by works. It has to either be a gift or it's not. Either God gets all the glory for his loving kindness, or he doesn't. Man gets some of the glory. Now, a good question to ask related to this, just thinking a little bit about application is, what do you place, on what do you place your salvation hope? You might affirm your belief in the Bible, but practically, do you put your trust in good works or rituals? Did you start by grace through faith? But now, as you continue to live as a Christian, are you proceeding on the basis of works to keep you saved or to keep you acceptable to God? If God did everything in salvation and there's no more work to be done, why do you try to add to his work? Now, immediately there's a concern in all this, and that's the idea of cheap grace. What are those who claim faith in God, but then live like the devil? Or those who professed faith in God at some time in the past, but they're no longer walking with him. They don't even believe in God anymore. Doesn't the Bible say that those who sin will not go to heaven? How do we bring, how do we unite this with what we just read and learned from Paul? Well, we now need to look at another passage. Let's go to James. James chapter 2. And we're going to examine this set of verses a little bit more thoroughly. So this is towards the end of the New Testament, right after Hebrews. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 26. Now, in this context that we're going to be looking at, right before our passage, James is rebuking Jewish believers. That's his primary audience, scattered Jewish believers. He's rebuking them for showing partiality to the rich and abusing the poor among them, those who, who actually are assembled as part of their congregations. They're showing favor to the rich, and they're being prejudiced against the poor. And he warns, James warns, that transgressors of God's law, even those who show partiality, will be judged. And then he explains this next teaching, in starting in verse 14. And again, we'll take this passage in sections. First, verses 14 to 17. James says, 
What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Make some observations here. Notice verse 14 begins with two rhetorical questions. Have expected answers. When he says, what use is it if someone says he has faith and has no works? The answer is, it's no use. It's useless. Or when he says, can that kind of faith save him? The expected answer is, no. If a man says he has faith but no works, that kind of faith can't save him. Say, wait a second, is this contradicting Paul? Well, let's, let's hear James out. He presents an analogy in verse 15. He says, faith without works is like someone telling a fellow Christian in desperate need, I really want to see all your needs met. But then he does nothing to actually meet those needs. Now, what use are such words? Well, they're no use. It's a useless thing. And does the person who says, I really want your needs to be met, does he actually want those needs to be met if he does nothing about them? There's no reason to believe so. He doesn't really desire that because he's not doing anything about that. You'd know he actually desired that if he actually worked to meet the needs. You'd know that he had compassion if he actually acted in a way consistent with that compassion. He didn't just make compassionate claims. In the same way, James says, faith without works is dead by itself. Now, note something here, or something we should ask. Is James saying that this faith he describes is real but insufficient, or that this faith is not really real faith? Just keep that question in mind. Is he actually describing what is real faith or something that only masquerades as faith? Let's look at James' next argument in verses 18 and 19. A little short couplet here. James says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now for this section, James imagines a hypothetical response to his earlier assertion. And then there's some debate as to where the quotation marks should end in verse 18. Remember that in the original Greek, there are no quotation marks. They're just part of our translations to help us understand. And the New American Standard translation puts the end of the quotation at the end of verse 18, whereas the NIV and the ESV, for instance, they and the quotation right after the phrase, you have faith and I have works. So that's, that's the, the extent of the hypothetical according to those translations. I, I would lean on the side of the NIV and the ESV here. That, that usage of quotation marks makes more sense to me in how the argument of this verse is laid out. So that's the way I'm going to interpret it. So the hypothetical contention that James deals with is the idea that you have faith and I have works. 
or that is to say, it's possible to have either one or the other. You can't have faith without works, is the assertion. That's one way to be saved, but you can also have works, and that's another way to be saved. But what's James' challenge in response to this hypothetical assertion? Show me your faith without works. Now let me ask you, as James is really asking us, how would you show your faith without works? Tough question, right? How can you do that? What possible way could you have? There's maybe one answer someone might suggest. You could say, well, you say the right things. You affirm true doctrine. That's a way to show your faith. But that's a trap. That's a trap answer because notice what James says in response. You believe that God is one. Now that's a clear allusion to the Old Testament. That's a very famous section of scripture that a Jewish believer would recognize. That's the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Now, that's a true statement. That's true doctrine. That is a foundation for true doctrine. True, true doctrine. That's why the Jews knew that phrase so well. It was a key section of the law. But does this affirmation that God is one, that Yahweh is one, does that demonstrate true saving faith? Hardly, because who else affirms that statement? The demons. And they tremble, James says. They tremble at this truth. They tremble at God's judgment. They can affirm true doctrine, but they're not saved. They will not be spared from the wrath. In the same way, if you're going to affirm your faith by merely speaking true doctrine, you're in as much trouble as the demons. That's not the way to demonstrate faith. What's the only way to demonstrate faith? It's what James says. I will show you my faith by my works, by what I do. Now notice the way he phrases that. I will show you my faith. I will demonstrate my faith. This language is specifically about showing a faith that is present and real. Not necessarily adding to it, but showing it. Now let's take a look now at the last section here in this part of James, James 2, 20 to 26. It's a little bit longer, but you'll see how these six or seven verses, they fit together to form one final mode of argumentation for James. Look at verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, as we observe this last section, we might say, uh, isn't this directly contradicting what Paul wrote in Ephesians and other places? But as we understand this more and more, we'll see that it's not really. This is not a different gospel. 
Notice the kind of argumentation that James employs in this last paragraph. This is an argument by example. And he cites two examples from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. James explains, the justifying work of Abraham is his offering up of Isaac on the altar. That's the example that James wants to point to. And that took place in Genesis 22. That way back when, that's one of the portions of the Old Testament that we examined together. This offering, James says, perfected or completed, brought to a conclusion, brought to a fulfillment, brought to an end, Abraham's faith. James also says this action fulfilled another scripture, this statement about Abraham believing God and being accounted to him as righteousness. Now that, you may also remember, comes from Genesis 15, Genesis 15, 6. And the context of that statement was uh, God promising to multiply descendants far more than Abraham could ever count, brings Abraham outside, look at the stars, your descendants will be just like these, and it says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to Abram as righteousness. Abram at that time wasn't even called Abraham yet. Now that's interesting that he refers to Genesis 22 as a completion or perfection of Abraham's faith, but then he refers to this statement from Genesis 15. This was not only earlier in the biblical record, by seven or eight chapters, but chronologically, it was also way earlier. Genesis 15, that statement occurred at least 20 years before Abraham's actions in Genesis 22. And yet, 20 years earlier, God was able to report of Abraham, he is accounted righteous. So we have, on the one hand, the example of Abraham, and on the other hand, the example of Rahab and her hiding the spies in Joshua chapter 2. Now, Rahab is an interesting example, not only because she represents an extreme as a harlot, but she's also not Jewish. She's a Gentile. And yet, she displays something similar to Abraham. She displays a justifying work, or what James describes as a justifying or completing work. Now, notice, it's not Rahab's lying or... Um, yeah, it's not her lying to protect the spies that is cited here as example of a good work. But it's her receiving the messengers, these spies from Israel, and sending them out another way, which would have been a very risky action for her in that city of Jericho. Now, from these examples, notice James' conclusions in verse 24 and verse 26. He says, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And as a body without a spirit is dead, so also is faith without works. Now, what do we do with this? How do we interpret this, especially in light of what we already know from Paul? Let's ask a few questions. In the example of Abraham, was Abraham righteous before he offered up Isaac or only after? It had to be before, because that's when God pronounced him righteous. 20 years before, eight chapters before, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. If he wasn't fully righteous at that time, then God's declaration makes no sense, because God doesn't accept partial righteous, righteousness. If Abraham was not fully righteous, then God could not have declared him to be so. And yet, if Abraham was fully righteous, then in what sense... Could Abraham have become justified or have his faith completed 
in offering up his son, Isaac. What do you think? If Abraham was already, already pronounced righteous, fully righteous before God, in what sense could his offering up of Isaac complete Abraham's faith or justify Abraham? Can you say that again loudly? Yes, I think that's the way we have to see this. This is about demonstrating giving evidence of the faith that has already been pronounced righteous, or already uh, produced the accounting of righteousness that, that God announces. His faith demonstrated or shown that he had real life within himself. This is why I say James sounds like he contradicts Paul and other teachings of the New Testament, but he actually doesn't. How do... James's teaching and Paul's teaching about the relationship of works and faith fit together. We could answer it in this way. True faith always produces good works as evidence of that faith. True faith always produces good works as evidence of that faith. In that sense, that person is justified or completed or perfected. James uses those terms a little bit differently than some of the other writers do in other, other sections of the scripture, but it's about this demonstration of real life within someone. It's not that works save a person. It's faith that saves a person, and that is wholly the gift of God, wholly the work of God. But this work always produces a changed life. And so if you claim faith without that change, then <clears throat> James says you've got a problem. Because think about all the blessings that come to a person in salvation. Just some of them, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside him. His mind is open to understand spiritual truth. He is made to be in union in the, with the death, the burial, the resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. These things make it so that a Christian will, by simple cause and effect, demonstrate evidence of faith in his life. He will produce holy living. And James is not the only one to lay out this truth in such strong terms. Consider Paul's own words in Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. Romans 6, 1 to 4, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There's no contradiction between James and Paul. Paul said the very same thing. Or we could go to John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. John says, 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, 
In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Hmm, same word, same idea. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Or consider the words of our Lord Jesus himself. Matthew 12, verses 33 to 35. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. This idea of trees and fruit is, is a, gives us a helpful metaphor to understanding salvation and the relationship of faith and works. It's been said that the tree of, of salvation or of this tree of salvation, if we think of salvation or justification before God, it's like a tree. Faith in Jesus is the root and holy living is the fruit. So if we apply this analogy to the two passages that we've looked at today from Ephesians and from James, Paul clarifies that fruit are not what give the tree life. It's the root that does. That's why he says salvation is by faith. But James clarifies that no, how, no matter how much you claim or a person claims that a tree has a good root, if it doesn't bear good fruit, there's no reason to believe so. Without the fruit, there's no reason to say that the root is present. And all of these, and they're helpful principles for us today. On the one hand, when we consider these truths in the scriptures, we are equipped against legalism, works righteousness, trying to do things to earn God's favor and salvation, because we understand it is not what I do that saves me, but it is what Jesus has done for me. I am accepted by faith in the Son. So on the one hand, we are equipped to answer those kinds of temptations and objections. And on the other hand, we are equipped by these truths against licentiousness, or what's sometimes called antinomianism. No law, anti-law. Doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to obey the commands of God. That's not important. Because we see, if I truly believe in the Son, then I will pursue holiness. If these realities are true, I cannot tolerate sinful living in my life. And this is key for us to understand because of the great confusion around these truths today. We need to help people understand this. Even those who claim to be religious, claim to be Christians, they will have misunderstandings in these areas. And we need to help them. That's part of our fulfilling the Great Commission. But two other things I want to point out briefly by way of application before we close. Two questions for you to consider. When it comes to assurance of salvation, when I say, speak of assurance, I'm talking about that settled sense that you are at peace with God. You know Jesus. You will be spared from God's wrath, and you will be with the Lord forever in heaven. What is the primary source, or what ought to be the primary source of a believer's assurance? Is it his belief in Jesus, or is it his works of righteousness? What ought to be the source of his assurance? Now, may I submit to you an answer that may be a little bit surprising. It's both. Your assurance ought to come 
from both your belief in Jesus and the works of righteousness that are produced in your life. Because if you only have one or the other, if you only hold to one or the other, you're going to find yourself in trouble. If you make good deeds your only source of assurance, then not only are you in danger of slipping into works righteousness, that idea of I need to keep doing good works to be saved or be acceptable to God, but you will probably find yourself deeply discouraged whenever you sin. Because you will say to yourself, oh, how could I as a Christian have committed this sin? Oh, I don't even know if I'm saved. Every time you sin, you'll doubt your salvation. And you'll probably start trying to do a whole bunch of extra good works to make it up to God every time you've upset him. Now, it is right for us to grieve over sin. And repentance does result in a, a change of life. But you must never forget that it was not your righteousness that saved you or made you acceptable to God in the first place. It was Christ. Now, we can consider the example of the thief on the cross. When it came to his assurance of salvation, did he point to his righteous works? Did he say, oh, I know I'm going to heaven because look at the fruit in my life. No, he didn't have anything to point to. But he was confident. He had a reason for confidence. And what was that reason? The words of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise, rather. It's merely the words of Jesus and his belief in those words and belief in Jesus himself that he says, I know that I belong to him. I know that I am saved. So his assurance was based on the word of Jesus and his belief in Jesus. But if anyone, if any one of you makes his belief the only source of assurance, you say, oh, I, I believe and doesn't matter anything else. I know I believe. If that's the only source of your assurance, then you also are in danger. You're in danger of slipping into cheap grace and antinomianism. Doesn't matter how I live. Jesus will accept me. You may find yourself inappropriately comforting yourself while you pierce yourself through with sins and pierce the church through with sins and many sorrows. You may even believe yourself to be saved when you're not, forgetting that to believe in Jesus will result in a changed life and a commitment to love and holiness. Do not forget the haunting words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, in some way, it might seem difficult to you. unite these two ideas. How can my assurance come from my from my works and at the same time come from belief apart from works? I'm not exactly sure how to explain all of it, but I know that they're both true. As they're both related and important in the, in the process of salvation that we've looked at today, so they're important in our assurance. It's very interesting historically to see how depending on the climate of Christianity at a certain time, one part of a Christian's assurance will be emphasized over the other. And today, and today, in our period in America, where cheap grace is the predominant gospel, 
the true church rightly stands up and says, but you forgot that without fruit in your life, if you live a life of wickedness, you don't have a right to assurance of salvation. But in other periods, this wasn't the predominant gospel. In fact, in the Reformation, the truth about assurance that Calvin and Luther and others felt the need to proclaim was that don't trust in your imperfect works. Your source of assurance should be in the work of Jesus itself. It should be in your Lord. So we need to be sensitive to both of those things. Of course, in our culture, especially when we are, you know, uh, still dealing with the idea of lordship, do you really have to submit to Jesus? We, we err on that side of the assurance formula, or that side of the assurance, but it's the other aspect we need to keep in mind, too. I have one other question, but we don't have time to explore it today, and that is, do Christians have the right or responsibility to judge the fruit or salvation state of other people? That takes some explanation. It really, the answer is yes, with an asterisk. We have to judge with righteous judgment. It cannot be hypocritical. It cannot be a man-made standard. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, do not judge lest you be judged. But to do the Christian life, we have to make decisions. We have to make conclusions. We have to come to judgments, not condemnations, but conclusions on what is a person's likely spiritual state. How can I best speak to or minister to that person? If we're called to admonish, encourage, rebuke, how can we do that unless we pay attention to the evidence that is before us? And even our apostles and our Lord, they told us how to do that. They told us what the fruit of the flesh looks like and what the fruit of the spirit looks like. We can never see into someone's heart. All we can do is say, hey, look, this is what I see. I'm concerned for you, brother. I'm concerned for you, friend. We cannot be sweeping with our judgments and say, you're in sin, so you obviously are not a Christian. There may be misunderstandings about how sanctification works that we need to help that brother or sister understand. But we do look at fruit as a way to help assess how we can better minister to a person. Now, there's a lot more we could say in the subject of faith and works. But this is all the time we have for today. In the end, these truths are to help us not only be faithful to the scriptures, but to glorify God. This is all solo dea glory for the glory of God alone. Next week, we return to the New Testament epistles, and we're going to consider a new theme, another theme, another very important theme, and that is the idea of our being made children of God. Why is that important? What does that mean? We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray as we close. Our Lord and God, we thank you that for this revelation of your truth, that salvation is indeed all of you and it comes by faith. And yet, God, we know that works are going to be a purpose and result of that. Lord, we struggle in this area. We struggle to not forget one aspect or the other. We can easily become legalists or we can easily excuse sin. Lord, protect us from that. And Lord, I pray that um, that we would give you the glory just as you deserve. Thank you, Lord, for performing this work, for delivering us out of darkness, from being children of wrath, and even making us into your sons. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I will see you next week.